Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Betrayal is one of the most painful of human experiences. It can cause a person to feel abandoned and even traumatized. Our primary romantic relationships tend to occupy the most sensitive places in our hearts. And because of this, the aftermath of an affair can be profoundly painful. And yet, affairs are not uncommon, as you will hear in this episode. What can be done to prevent an affair from happening? And how can a person or the couple recover afterward? The expert I chose to answer these and other important questions related to infidelity is Dr. Brittany Blair. Dr. Blair is a clinical psychologist and is board certified in both sleep and sexual medicine. She is an invited speaker at venues around the globe and has published work in the areas of sleep and sexual medicine for academic and the popular press. Dr. Blair is on the faculty for the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine and the co-founder and chief science officer of Lover, a digital platform designed to resolve sexual problems and to optimize sexual wellness. So join Dr. Blair and me as we discuss infidelity prevention, recovery, and nearly everything else a person should know about it. Dr. Brittany Blair, who has asked me to call her Brittany, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, you know, to kick things off, since we're talking about infidelity and affairs, I've read various statistics ranging from 25% of men to 15% of women have been unfaithful in marriage, all the way up to 37% of men to 21% of women. I imagine this data is hard to find because people probably lie about such things, but it seems fair to imagine that according to at least one of the books I've read, that perhaps one out of 2.7 relationships is affected by an affair. And that said, there are a lot of risk factors that can increase the likelihood of an affair, stress being one of them. And COVID has certainly provided plenty of that. And I would imagine that perhaps affairs could even be on the rise. But what are some risk factors that increase the likelihood of an affair happening? And what are some ways to prevent it? So in terms of the statistics, you're right, they vary. 15% of married women and 25% of married men is typically what's cited somewhere in that range. But also up to 75% of people at some point in their lifetime will have an affair or infidelity on their partner. So this is a very, very, very common thing that we're not By the way, did I hear you correctly? Up to 75% of people. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in their marriage, but at some point in their relationship history will cheat on their partner. I got it. For like high school or college. Or anytime or or during early dating ages or during middle age dating ages, you know, just anyway, that's just over the course of a lifetime, 75% of people are likely to cheat. So I think I say that for a couple of reasons. One, this is a very common problem that I think we should be talking more about and having compassion for both the cheater and the cheated, because this is not something that's kind of a one-off rogue sex addict kind of situation. And I also think we should be having the conversation more in relationships about what is leading to infidelity. So that we kind of protect relationships, put the guardrails before something happens. Brilliant. And what are some of the ways that it can be protected? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think there are many different reasons why people cheat. I think one of the most common is their partner feels and is gender nonspecific. So regardless of what gender, people feel neglected, either Mm -hmm. emotionally or sexually neglected, or they feel disconnected from their partner in some way. And for whatever reason, do not have the skills, the motivation, whatever it is to reconnect. A lot of people fear intimacy or have insecurities that run deep and wide, which leads them to infidelity. And some people are just dissatisfied with their relationship, whether that be with their erotic connection or with the relationship in general. And then there's temptation, endless temptation and endless opportunity these days with social media and all the ways of meeting people. And I think it may be helpful to define a fair 
people also define that very broadly, mm-hmm. right? having a sexting emotional affair with someone on Facebook to meeting someone up at a, a hotel and having an ongoing sexual encounter type of affair. So it really depends on the what are the rules and the boundaries in your relationship. And I love that you mentioned the rules and the boundaries in the relationship. There is perhaps an unspoken fidelity contract or perhaps a spoken one. And you're also speaking to the idea of the emotional sexual neglect that can transpire over the course of time or perhaps even early on and feeling disconnected. These terms are really important, I think, neglected, disconnected, as well as the lack of skills to reconnect. And that's, I think, where you or I come in as therapists providing those skills. I'd like to talk a little bit about those skills to reconnect. I'd also like to talk about sex as a second language, as I see it, because a lot of people use euphemisms, talk about down there or when we're intimate or when we <laughs> do that thing or whatever it vagisms. is. Vagisms. Mm-hmm. Vagisms, right. And one of the things I try to do is orient people to speak about sex in the way that they might speak about their car. It needs oil or the steering is not working quite properly and being as frank about sex as they would be about fixing their car. I'm wondering, how do you help people when they feel neglected, disconnected, or looking for ways to reconnect? So let me speak to the first piece, and then we can kind of talk together about the disconnected neglect piece. I think our society in particular has done a massive disservice to people around their sex and sexuality. So for many people, they grow up thinking sex is dirty, naughty, bad. And then the second that you especially if you have any kind of religious narratives, most of them are sex negative. And then all of a sudden... You get married and you're supposed to be swinging from the rafters knowing what is great sex or knowing how to even talk about what you want or even knowing what you want. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of couples because I specialize in couples and sex therapy where neither of them have literally ever shared a fantasy with each other. Or you ask one partner, how does he or she like to be touched? And they, you know, speak to their own experience and not their partner's experience. Mm. So as a society, we have done a big disservice in a couple of ways. Number one, not developing language around sex and teaching our kids how to ask for what they want early on. What are their boundaries? And then being able to communicate that not one off with your partner. I like to encourage my couples to have a state of the union every couple of weeks. And I generally recommend it's out of the bedroom while on a walk, while driving on a road trip so that you're not looking straight at each other. It's easy to be more vulnerable when you're staring in each other's eyes and just checking in saying, hey, our sexual connection, our erotic connection is really important to me. And I just want to know what's working for you, what's not working, and or maybe what do you want to try that we haven't really talked about. This should be a conversation that happens repeatedly throughout a relationship, not a one-off thing. Like I'd like to try role-playing tonight and then you never talk about it again. So something that needs to regularly happen, our relationship to sex changes over the course of our lifespan. And so it's a, it's an ever-changing thing that needs to be addressed. In every couple I've ever worked with, there is what we call desire discrepancy, where one partner wants more sex than the other partner. And oftentimes the partner desiring less sex feels pressured and put upon and like, why can't you just leave me alone? They don't even have the space maybe to find out what they want sexually because they feel constantly sexually pursued by their partner. And then the higher desire partner or the low desire partner may feel like, oh, there's something inherently wrong with me that I have a lower libido because all our culture talks about sex that we should all want it all the time. And I see just as many men, frankly, as I do women who have a low libido Mm -hmm. um, or lower libido than their female partners. So, and I recognize I'm being both gender binary and heteronormative in the way I'm describing this, but this translates across genders and configurations. And then the higher desire partner often feels neglected, sexually frustrated, disappointed, rejected. So both of these people are having very different experiences and very difficult to kind of identify with the other's experience. And every couple I've ever worked with, it has to navigate desire discrepancy at some point in their relationship. And relationship success depends on one's ability to navigate differences. One of the ways we navigate differences is actually communicate about them. And this is where I think it can get quite challenging for couples. And once sex becomes like the third rail issue, where every time you bring it up, it's a fight, both partners avoid bringing it up. And then we're really stuck. And then that can fester over the years. And lo and behold, they come in. You know, one of the interesting descriptions, I believe, it's attributable to John Gottman. And I'm going to mischaracterize the number of years, but... Apparently, if we have a cardiac incident, we may call 911 within 30 minutes. But if we have a relationship issue that's been festering, 
usually we call about five years into it. So it's quite late in the game. Not that it's not salvageable, but my gosh, we tend to be rather slow in responding to such things. You just threw down so many brilliant ideas that sex is dirty and naughty, and yet we should want it all the time. And we come from a sex negative culture and we should be swinging from the rafters, just like in the movies. And that couples often never share a fantasy. I often think also of what you were just saying with regard to an erotic connection and knowing the erotic interior of the other and recognizing that it's not the same, that we are not carbon copies. And while the golden rule used to say that do unto others as you'd want done to you actually doesn't apply here. The platinum rule does do unto the other as they want done to them. But I'm thinking about the state of the union, which I think may be one of the great ideas. Tell me every two weeks, what would be the bare minimum state of the union conversation would include? Well, I like to think of those conversations as a way for both partners to look forward to it. So this is not an opportunity for a critical fest, right? Nobody likes to be criticized. And let me tell you, there's nothing less sexy than feeling like your partner's critical or demanding. Like both of those things are just gross and not sexy. So I like to think of the state of the union as a time that is about reflection and connection, not about criticism and dive bombing the relationship. And the other thing I think is really important when I think about encouraging my couples that I work with to have a state of the union is anything in life that's worth having requires effort. Really? I mean, you want to be fit. It requires effort. You want to develop a new skill. It requires effort. You want to excel in your career. It requires effort. So why on God's green earth do we not think having a really amazing relationship and having a rocking sex life, either with solo sex with yourself or with your partner, it requires effort. Not only does it require effort, it should require effort. It's one of the most important aspects of life is our self, you know, our, our relationship with our partner. And for many of us, ourselves as a sexual being, it does and should require effort. That doesn't mean that it should be hard. Of course, sometimes it will be. But I think that the state of the union is about reflection and connection. So what is it that, and I like to talk about it as like a negative sandwich. So there's a positive, a negative, a positive. If there is something negative you want to talk about. So sharing what's kind of working well, what you really enjoyed over the last two weeks as it relates to the bond and the the connection between the two partners. And then maybe something you really want to prioritize more. That could be like quality time together, not totally. time both staring at our phones or looking at a movie, but like, let's have dinner where we're looking at each other. We light a candle and we have a conversation like we did when we were first dating. I recommend my couples go out on at least a date a week. That doesn't be at night and it could be, you know, hiding in their bedroom while the kids are asleep for a nap, but that's a date time. And during that date, there's no conversations about children. Right. There's no conversations about finances or about logistics or about scheduling or planning of any kind. Just talk to each other, chat with each other, get to know the person. As, we think as we know our partner. girlfriend or as to use yeah. binary terms, but yes. Yeah. Or as lovers. So as like, l- yeah. So I think that the state of the union can talk about like logistical thing, not logistical in terms of planning, but like various aspects of the relationship. How connected am I feeling? What were moments of sweet connection? And then also what you would like more of. And I think how you frame that is really important, that it's not about being critical. It's about wanting more closeness with your partner. You know, Brittany, I love this idea of not being demanding and I think about what Esther Perel, the great therapist, often talks about is sex is how we as grownups play. And it's an exploration of the taboo, the verboten, and it's secret. It's something that's just between these two people who are the players of it. And it's a massive contrast between the concept of intimacy. It's certainly intimate, but it's not intimacy exclusive. It's erotic. And there's a big difference between intimacy and erotic intimacy. You could have a lot of intimacy and no eroticism and a lot of eroticism and no intimacy. But what you're talking about is during the state of the union, making them non-shaming, non-blaming, but fun. Like, let's make this conversation a fun one. And if you're doing that positive to negative to positive sandwich, the negative piece you brought in was actually not even negative. It was actually a longing as I heard it. It's like, hey, here's something great. And here's a little longing that I'm having. And here's something else that's great. Yeah. Does that work for you? Yeah, absolutely. And you're framing it in a way that I think a lot of couples make the mistake of assuming that their partner understands and knows what they need. And we all know what happens when we assume, right? Make an (laughs) ass of you and me. So I think being able to figure out, tune into yourself, what is it that I'm needing that I may not be getting in the relationship? And then being able to articulate that in a constructive way to your partner, I think is really crucial. So yes, I love phrasing it as a longing and not a criticism. 
Yeah. I think the other piece that we we do a bit of a disservice that Esther talks a lot about, Esther Perel talks quite a bit about, is the non-normative nature of monogamy. So we are animals in the animal kingdom, and monogamy is a behavioral choice that we make for really valid reasons, like really valid reasons. <laughs> Stability, non-monogamy is complicated to navigate. Culturally, monogamy is kind of the default. But monogamy is not your natural state of being. And so I think if we're having that conversation as well, like, of course, you're married or you're partnered, you're not dead. Of course, you're going to be attracted to the trainer at the gym or the postman or postwoman or whatever it is. That's perfectly healthy and okay. And if you do choose to be monogamous, then what I encourage my couples to do is go out and harness that energy, the kind of sexual tension and energy you're getting from other people and come home and take it out on your partner. Brilliant. But that's something else I think we should be talking about regularly, maybe not every state of the union, but in some of the states of the union is, how are you doing with this monogamy thing? So one of the things we know about eroticism and intimacy is that the more intimacy goes up, the less eroticism. And so it's, I like to think of eroticism and intimacy on a scale. In order for you to really have a high level of eroticism, you need space from your partner. This is why we're all kind of driven by novelty. You need some space, you need some distance, you need them not to become no, please don't call your partner mommy and daddy unless oh. it's a sexual fetish that you have. Right? If it's a sexual fetish, knock yourself out. But calling each other mommy and daddy around the kids or just to each other, it's just a buzzkill. Um, again, unless that's a, an erotic thing for you, that doesn't count. So I think being mindful of giving your partner distance, not seeing them as pigeonholed, like you're just the mother of my children or just the father of my children, and recognize they are complex and have lots of stuff going on, you know, and you'll never fully know them. I think helps drive the erotic. And then the counter of that is some people want more intimacy than they do eroticism. And so there's certainly the idea of sex as play, but there's also the idea of sex as bonding and connecting and deepening the attachment. So sex is a way of communicating connection. And in my feeling, having done this for quite some time, is you want a little bit of both. You want some erotic sex as play, and then you also want some deep lovemaking kind of connection in the relationship kind of keeping those two things alive. And I like the idea of space as a requirement. I think oftentimes of fire needs oxygen. And if it doesn't have the oxygen, it gets extinguished. And I also love what you brought up of just recognizing that we are not co-parents. If we are raising children together, we are lovers. And one of my all-time favorite axioms is that the axis around which your children's world spins is the quality of the relationship you share with your co-parent. And a big part of that is keeping that sexual energy alive, kind of keeping that erotic energy flowing. And I would actually prefer for children to see their parents holding hands, hugging, kissing, and almost being like, come on, mom and dad, I get it. You love each other. Rather than them being stiff and cold and distant and just in that stale position, I think that children can pick up on that there is tremendous distance between my parents. And perhaps that's not a great thing. Perhaps they are on the verge of divorce or something else. Yeah. I mean, parents are the models for their children. So they're the ones that model what is affectionate touch look like between mom and dad. And certainly sexual touch is not appropriate in front of children. I mean, children are looking to their parents for just certainly for security and that their parenting bond, but also for how do I relate to my partner? Right. So now, by the way, important. I want to be clear. I was not advocating for parents to be gross in front of their no, children. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. That said, let's go into the whole idea of the affair. It has transpired. And of course, the big question is to reveal or to not reveal if it has transpired. And there are implications to both to keeping the secret and to not keeping the secret. And I like thinking of the person who committed the affair as kind of the unfaithful and the person who did not as maybe the harmed individual or the hurt individual. And I'm wondering, what should the unfaithful person do when weighing the consideration to reveal or to not reveal? I think as with most things, I don't think there's a one size fits all here, but I am a big believer in intentions. So a lot of people share the affair with their partner in order to make themselves feel better, to get them something off their chest and to get this off their back, to relieve themselves of guilt because they know they've done something not in line with their values. And sometimes you're just putting something that your partner doesn't necessarily need to know or want to know or whatever on them. And so it's a tremendous burden and it's a heavy thing to walk through life knowing that you've been betrayed. 
and not really understanding why, and then going through the arduous work of rebuilding trust in the relationship. So I think in some situations, it's important for the unfaithful partner to share and be and disclose about what happened. And I think in some situations, it's not. I think if the unfaithful partner can recognize what cracks were they avoiding in the relationship, what insecurities are they getting in touch with, what neglect of themselves emotionally or sexually or otherwise was going on that they weren't speaking up about. And if they can get in touch with those things and use the affair as a catalyst for change, then they may or may not need to share the fact that there was an infidelity or the details of the infidelity with their partner. So I guess I would say it really depends, but I would check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> like, What are your intentions in this disclosure? And if your intentions are like, wow, I can't keep something like this from my partner, it really is going to prevent me from feeling fully connected if I'm holding such a big secret, then sleep on that and decide how you're going to disclose that in a, in a productive, healthy way. And certainly if you feel like your partner could find out about it and the betrayal is even worse, but I would check in with yourself about what your intentions are. And if it's just because you feel guilty or you want to get something off your chest, but then you're going to burden your partner with this really for the rest of their lives. You think twice about it. Yeah, it's a really tough call and it's a really personal call. And it's really an assessment of how well do I know my partner? And can I project that this person would prefer to know or prefer not to know? And of course, the other variables, will they find out in other ways? You've also highlighted a very important piece, and that is sometimes the affair itself shines a bright light on what has been missing in the relationship. And that can be incredibly, it's obviously a very costly way to gain that information, but at least it can be repurposed after all with the proper intentions. And certainly I've seen that to great effect later on. And I imagine you have as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think when couples, whether the cheated upon partner finds out about the affair or not, when couples can take an infidelity, hold it with the complexity that it deserves, which is up to 75% of people are going to cheat at some point in their lives. This is not uncommon. Monogamy is hard for all of us, by the way, for all of us, (laughs) for some more than others. And many partners who have affairs on their partner still really love their partner. So it's not a matter of, I don't love you. It it could be a matter of temptation, opportunity, like the things we've already discussed. So I think being able to hold yourself and or your partner with compassion, and then use this as a real wake-up call, as an opportunity. You know, Esther Perel talks about it as the birth of a new relationship. If you're willing to work through it, she talks about having had three marriages, (laughs) right? And it's like different relationships with her same partner. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I find myself thinking about, you brought up the idea that the person who betrayed may still truly love their partner. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what an affair means. I was wondering if you could share some of your insights of what are some of the misconceptions out there about affairs? Yeah, I think that's a big one, right? That's a big one. Like if you loved me, you wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And that's just not, that's just patently false. I will say we're talking about repairing. I will say that sometimes affairs are one partner's attempt to end the relationship. And so when I talk to couples about recovery, the very first thing I talk about is convince me why you want this relationship and convince me why this relationship is worth having because not all relationships are, you know, oftentimes we outgrow each other in recognizing long-term partnership with the same person over the course of a lifetime. We kind of idealize it or romanticize about it in our culture. And if someone's divorced, that means they've had a failure. Well, that very well could mean that they grew out of that relationship. They're in them and their partner grew in a different way and they want to be in a different relationship. It does not represent a failure. And one could argue that reaching the age of 80 and having been in a miserable relationship for the past 50 years is a failure of life. (laughs) So I think that relationship separating is not always a failure. I think we need to really shift our conversation and thinking around that. So the first thing I talk with my couples about is, you know, tell me why you want this to work. What is the motivation? And it is really often the case that someone either had a crime of opportunity, maybe they'd been feeling sexually neglected by their partner, or maybe they got starstruck in the eyes of a new partner. We get that kind of limerence feeling when we meet someone new and there's a mutual attraction there. It's like a physiological response and excitement that doesn't last for anyone. And in in any long-term monogamous relationship that lasts from six months up to two years, if you're lucky. So it goes away for all of us. (laughs) And all of us love that limerence, like heart fluttery phase. 
that's correlated with novelty. And so it very well could be you get caught up in the limerence and you're not thinking and you make a mistake or you're using substances and you're on a trip on a, in a conference or something and you do open it's a, a crime of opportunity. Totally. That does not mean that you don't love your partner or nope. that you don't really value their relationship. You need to take a look at yourself and you may need to be having a conversation with your partner. But, but yeah, I think that's a big misconception that affairs happen out of a desire to harm the other person or a desire to be out of the relationship. Sometimes they do, but certainly not always. I would say most of the time not. And I love the idea of you meeting with a couple and you asking the couple, especially the unfaithful partner, hey, convince me that you really want this relationship and that you were not just unconsciously torpedoing the relationship itself. And I love the idea of you disabusing the listener of the idea that a marriage that ends in divorce is necessarily a failure. It actually could have had many good years and served its purpose and lived its life and brought the person to the next destination. It's really all a question of how we frame it. I'd like to go back, though, to the aftermath of an affair. And one of the pieces that's showing up in the literature is that something akin to PTSD can emerge for the betrayed party. And that is, uh, some people call it PISD, post-infidelity stress disorder. And it makes sense. It's the death of the relationship that they thought they had. So they've been close to death. And in other ways, one of our most primal needs is to know that we are affiliated, that we are safe, we are secure. And if anything, an affair says, hey, guess what? You're being threatened right now. You could be cast out of the tribe. You could be on your own, which deep in our brains, we've been conditioned not to allow for because historically that's meant our certain death. So these PISD, these post-traumatic stress responses seem very normal. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Sure. I mean, I think I would compare it in a similar way to what we call acute stress disorder versus mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder. Good. So I think if the couple, once the betrayal and the infidelity comes to light, recognizes that there will be acute infidelity syndrome, where acute infidelity stress syndrome, I'm just making these up as I go, right? And in that acute infidelity stress stage or syndrome, that person needs to, the person that's been betrayed, needs to process their grief. And grief, one could argue, well, it's been written about, there's multiple stages of grief and they're non-linear. And those include denial, what is it? Dep denial, um, anger, anger, bargaining, bargaining depression, and acceptance. acceptance right? And then ultimately, possibly the sixth phase, I believe that it was identified by Kessler as finding meaning after the, after. Yes. Yeah. So I think where the risk here is that when the betrayed partner is in that acute infidelity stress response and they aren't allowed to have their grief, there's not a container for their grief. They are totally. not working with a therapist who actually works with infidelity. They're not supported in processing their grief. I think then you have the risk of developing post-infidelity stress syndrome or stress disorder. It depends on was this affair a one-off thing at a drunken bachelor party or was this a ongoing years long emotional plus, you know, and I think that how people grieve is dependent on the person, but also <sighs> dependent on the offense. Boy. So if someone's, if your partner of 10 years has been having an affair with a partner for the last three years, sexual and emotional and all of this, then I think it's going to take you more than 30 days to kind of process that grief. But yes, I would say if you're not processing it in a supported, healthy way, then you have, the, there's a risk of developing kind of ongoing stress symptoms, which extreme insecurity, jealousy, acting out behaviors, depression, severe anxiety. I've, yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, Brittany, you're bringing up so many things for the listener to hear because if it's been going on for three years, all of those photos in the photo album become somewhat tainted by the affair. It's like, oh my gosh, we were hugging each other during Christmas and you were having an affair at that time. This photo has become tainted and I'm going to need a lot of healing around that. So you're saying the amount of time that the affair has been going on really will determine some of the level of the stress response. I'm also thinking that our childhood experiences that we come into the relationship with, like if we're children of seeing infidelity in our household, that we might be more sensitive to that should it transpire in our own relationships. Because that represents an older wound if we saw that in childhood or we saw the sequelae, right? The fallout after a betrayal like that in our childhood home, I think for sure. Wow. Very important. So one of the other things that you're also describing is in that 
denial phase and in the anger phase of the grief itself, and perhaps even in the depression phase of the grief, maybe even in the bargaining, that it's very important, I'm guessing, certainly been my experience for the unfaithful partner to really hear, to really listen to the experience of the harmed person. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's absolutely imperative to healing. And I think it's really difficult. I think one of the emotions that we as humans try to avoid because it historically threatened our physical survival is anger. Like when anyone's angry with us, our natural reaction is defensiveness to fight back or to flee or to just freeze and go numb. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think recovering from infidelity, it's really important to work with a therapist who's trained in this and have basically a facilitated conversation so that the offending partner has the support in sitting with their partner's anger and rage and sadness and betrayal and fear and shame and all of the complex feelings that comes from having been betrayed or having having had your partner cheat on you. So I think in order for healing to happen, several components, I would say, first of all, do you, is this actually a relationship you want or was the affair putting a nuclear bomb in the relationship because you don't want to be in the relationship? So that's the first step. Do you want to be it? <laughs> Let's decide if you want to work on this first. And the second being truly the offending partner needs to truly apologize. And as a part of that apology, they need to be supported in sitting in their partner's experience whether they like it or not, it doesn't feel good. It's not going to feel good. It's not going to be easy, but really empathizing and sitting in the partner's pain and all, all the emotions I just mentioned, I think is imperative. And then on the flip side, I think it's super important for the betrayed partner not to hold things as black and white and to find their path to forgiveness if they want to save their relationship. And that's not easy to do. We, I think we as humans, we want to kind of simplify and put things in black and white. So to use your example of seeing yourself hugging your partner in a picture at Christmas and then to say, oh, that was the week after you saw her and whatever, took her on this trip or whatever. The truth of the matter could be, I'm not saying it is, it could be that he had this affair partner and he was very present and loving and with you on that Christmas day and that hug. So just because someone's offends does not necessarily mean every aspect of your experience with your partner was fake. So good and such an important and nuanced and difficult Jedi level skill to rock for the hurt party to recognize, yes, he loved me in that moment. And yes, I also see the photo a little bit differently, but this is not a mutually exclusive proposition. And that is a very difficult thing. I mean, cognitive dissonance theory really invokes the idea of like holding two distinctly different thoughts. Like he loved me and that was going on at the same time. How do I reconcile this? And that's a conundrum and something Mm -hmm. for each of us to work out. At the same time, I'm wondering what tips would you give the unfaithful partner who needs to hear? How can that partner self-soothe and really, really be present and listen, even as they are feeling shame? and feeling protective and defensive and all of the walls that go up, how can they really enter the subjective reality of the hurt person? That's a great question. And also I think is going to vary depending on the individual. So I think working with a therapist, as I've mentioned multiple times, is really helpful in that because the therapist can slow things down and make sure the conversation maintains is, is productive. And not all therapists are created equal. So finding someone who can do that effectively. I think the other thing for both partners that I would almost always recommend is slow down. It's when we speed up and we allow stuff going on inside of ourselves to become reactive that we are no longer able to be responsive. So tune into your body. And if you're feeling like the beating of your chest or the grinding of your guts, slow down. What is your body telling you? You're having a reaction. Hold that reaction because right now it's about your partner telling you how they feel, not about you. And so I think if people can slow down and even hit the pause on the conversation until emotions are able to subside a little bit, that's one kind of little hint or tip or trick or whatever that I would give anyone having to listen to their partner say things that are very scary and hard to hear is slow yourself down. I'm so happy that I chose you for this interview. Uh, I just, I'm just loving this. Okay. So what are some of the basic 
rules to protect the couple navigating the world after the affair. I've heard all types of great wise ideas for kind of everything from discontinuing a contact with the lover, but let's hear what yours are. What are your, would be some of your tips of navigating well after? An sure. So the first thing I'm going to go back to is my comment about ensuring that this is a relationship that you want to be in. Because if you are in any way motivated to continue contact with a partner that is threatening your relationship, then you need to really reflect whether you want to be in the, this relationship. We can think about this like the short term, the middle term, and the long term of recovery. In the very short term, well, forever, you want to make your partner feel safe. But in the very short term, that's going to require much more patience and much more energy than it will once your partner has regained trust in you. There has to be a trust that is restored. And in that short-term phase, making your partner feel safe may mean agreeing on when you're going to be home, letting your partner know where you are, staying connected via text message, a myriad of those kind of practical things that will make your partner feel safe, allowing your partner to vent and be sad and be angry, to cry, to whatever it is they need to do, reassuring your partner that you're still attracted to them, that you still love them. In the short term, that's going to require a tremendous amount of energy on the part of the offending partner in order to heal. Once trust begins to be restored, so during the, towards the end of that first short-term process toward the middle term, I think now you're looking at really being honest about what were the cracks in the relationship when you've allowed your partner the process to grieve the betrayal, what caused this affair? How and why did it happen? I will say as an aside, I strongly encourage the offended partner, the partner that was cheated upon, do not ask details of your partner. Totally. Everybody has that temptation. They want to yep. know what sex acts did you engage in? Where were you? What were they wearing? And trust me, you can <laughs> never get those images <laughs> out of your head. was it? There's nothing your partner is going to say that A, you're mm -hmm. going to believe or going to make you feel better. So, but there is a real temptation to want the details and to equate details equals I'm going to be safer because they're not holding anything back from me. So there is a level of detail that may be helpful to go into. We engaged in this sexual activity for this many weeks or this many times we met up, but I would not ask like really, really detailed so that you're able to kind of create a word picture because that's going to send your brain. You're not going to be able to get it out or just yeah. go into detail. Not, you know, I wouldn't want enough detail that my mind can picture what you're doing, what the room look like, what they're wearing, what, you know, I just, no. Mm -mm. Totally. <laughs> And you think when you're on the hurting end of that, you think that more information is going to make you feel safe. It just makes the grieving more complicated for some. I mean, maybe for some people, they, it does help to hear every single detail. So what, most people, the, arms. so what would be reasonable for the hurt person to expect from their partner moving forward? What might be some of the things that they could say, listen, for example, it could be in the frame, I want to have passcode to your phone and I want to be able to see your texts. I'm wondering how you feel about that and or other things that you might have heard the hurt person say, I need this thing moving forward to feel secure. So I think this is a real slippery slope. I think there's a big difference between privacy and secrecy. And in healthy attachment, you don't have secrets. All of us have a right to privacy. All of us have a right to privacy. And that may be, what are our private thoughts and fantasies? There's no such thing as a thought crime. There's no such thing as a fantasy crime. We all have the right to privacy and to have our own experience. So I think it could be appropriate for the offended partner to ask to see something in the phone. Can you show me your text string with this person? I think you run the risk when you say, I'm not going to feel safe unless I get the passcode to your phone. I think you run the risk of A, being tempted to dig through every single thing you possibly can and further increasing kind of the chasm between the two of you as it's this like prove to me that you can be trusted. At the end of the day, that trust is going to be a choice. No one can prove that they're trustworthy. You are either going to decide to trust your partner or you're going to decide not to. And I think in that short term of grief, short term stage of recovery, then you got mid and long, right? In the short term stage of recovery, you got to feel all your feelings. Your partner needs to make space for those feelings. And I think you got, you got to be careful about wanting too much detail that you think is going to make you feel better when in fact, you're just grieving. You're grieving what you thought you had. You're moving into hopefully into a different relationship if your partner's willing to work on it. And I personally don't think 
going through your partner's every email. And I, I just feel like you, there, you just run the risk of either misunderstanding things or it just, it just does not set up a good dynamic. So I think we need to respect each other's privacy and not hold secrets from one another. I think that's a great distinction between privacy and secrecy. I think that's just fantastic, really important rubrics to hold in mind. Brittany, you and I believe, I think I'm being presumptuous, but I'm quite certain I'm correct about this. I've certainly seen many couples thrive after affairs, to use your term, that kind of that third stage of marriage. And that may seem like a very distant fantasy for many people. And I'm wondering if you could describe what are the trends, what's consistent with the people who have been able to make it out the other side? What are some of the things that you've noticed? First of all, I think an affair can be a wake-up call and the ending of an unhealthy relationship and the beginning of a new, beautiful, more healthy relationship. So I definitely think that can happen. I think what often happens, at least in our culture, is the offending partner gets painted as the bad guy or gal or person or the bad person, the sex addict. There's no such thing as sex addiction. There's compulsive sexual behavior, but we know there's now, now no, there's no such thing as sex addiction or they get painted as the pathological partner. And that actually really robs the non-offending partner of the opportunity to look at themselves and their role in the relationship. So affairs don't happen in a vacuum. And so I think in order for couples to truly heal and have a better, healthier relationship, both partners have to take responsibility for their role in the infidelity. No, I'm not saying because you didn't want to have sex with your partner for three months, that justifies them going and having an affair. But I do think you sexually neglecting your partner is something that needs to be addressed in a relationship. So sexual neglect of your partner is a wrong and having an affair is a wrong. And both of those wrongs don't make a right. The bo- both individuals being able to really take a hard look in the mirror and see what were the relational and contextual sexual emotional factors that led to this betrayal. I want to put one caveat on that. It is sometimes the case that people have a tendency to engage in self-sabotaging or unhealthy compulsive behaviors. So while I always think there are takes two to tango, right? There's always relationship dynamics that need to be explored. There are some people who engage in unhealthy behaviors and that it could include overusing substances. So some people use overuse substances as a way to self-medicate and other people do it as a way to self-harm. So I do think there are a much smaller than the number of people who cheat, but a small subset of people who have this kind of self-sabotaging or self-harm that lead them into compulsive sexual behaviors or multiple affairs simultaneously, which I think is something that the offending partner needs to be in deep therapy and introspection and reflection on kind of what is causing that self-harm, self-sabotaging behavior. That maybe 5% of the cases of infidelity and 95% of the cases, it's a relational issue. There's something lacking. There's something missing in the relationship, either neglect, emotional, sexual, some disconnection, the offending partner being a conflict avoidant. And this is an opportunity to like now start talking about feelings that you never talked about before. Recognize that your relationship deserves effort and is going to require effort. So I think it's 95% of cases, it can be a healing thing. Again, if partners both want to be in the relationship. It's interesting when I think about what you're saying, I mean, an affair truly represents a crisis. And to borrow from that very much cited idea, the Chinese character for crisis can also be read as opportunity. And this is not the crisis or the opportunity that anybody wants, but it's the one that's being presented at this moment. And the question is, how are we going to navigate? And you're saying that each partner, and you're not blaming the hurt party, but you're also saying both of us need to really do a deep dive at the proper stage of healing to just really do a uh, state of the union on how we're doing and how we got here and how we can prevent this in the future as a couple who is coordinated, who loves each other and who's committed to each other and who's willing to talk about something that's very uncomfortable for many people, which is sex itself and being willing to desensitize themselves to the discomfort that they may feel around talking about this. Brittany, what does sex look like after an affair? What can it look like? And what should the couple aim for after the affair? So I think conversations about reconnecting erotically should probably happen in the mid stage of recovery in the relationship. So in that first stage of recovery, it's all about 
creating safety for the other partner, for the partner who has been cheated upon and allowing that person to experience all stages of grief and, and creating safety and regaining trust, right? You'll be regaining trust for the rest of your relationship, but really regaining trust in those early stages. That's not the time to talk about how bad your partner was in bed and that's why you cheated or you weren't having sex frequently enough and now you want to be having sex every day if they don't want to happen it again. So in those early stages, it's about repairing this rupture that you committed in the relationship, I mean, this massive disconnection. I think in the middle stage of recovery is where now you're starting to look at what were the cracks in the foundation that led to the fair in the beginning. And it's during that stage of the relationship that I think you can begin talking about how to reconnect erotically. And this is where you want to be having the conversations, ideally with a therapist who specializes in sex and infidelity and kind of connecting erotically. Or if you don't have the access to that, which most people don't, having conversations again outside of the bedroom, not looking at each other on a walk or on a drive about what do you want your sexual relationship to look like? What was working in your sex before the affair? What did you want more of? And ask your partner the same so that you guys begin gently discussing what do you want sex to look like? And I think in the beginning of reconnecting erotically, you need to follow your partner's, the cheated upon partner's lead. So asking them, initiating, does it feel safe for me to hold you right now? Does it feel safe for me to kiss you? Is it okay if I touch your body in this way right now? So in the beginning, you're very slowly connecting, reconnecting erotically with your partner and you're following their lead. Expect that to be not for everyone, but is often slow going initially into that kind of getting reconnected erotically. And then during that long term, so if we think short term recovery, mid term recovery, long term recovery, long term recovery is where you really can dive deeper into doing sexual exploration and erotic exploration with your partner. So, what are things that you haven't tried that would be fun to explore together? How are you going to keep the sex hot between the two of you? What are some fantasies that you've never shared with each other? That's also in that long-term stage of recovery is also where you're talking about how do you deepen your bond, not just repair the wounds. And now we're going to see the cracks, but how do you deepen your bond? What is a relationship worth having? How do you grow together? How do you connect on multiple different levels? And in that, I think sex is kind of a, I like to think of sex as like a microcosm of everything else in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So in this way, sex becomes this little, it will kind of follow you along your recovery journey, but expect that to be a time slow going. But if you put in the effort as well, it can be well worth it. Yeah. And I like the idea that sex can be a huge part of the relationship when it's not going well. And it can be a smaller part of the relationship when it is going well. Yeah. Sex itself. And probably like you, oftentimes when I ask an individual or a couple about how sex life is going, it's indicative of a lot of things. It's predictive of so many things. And I just kind of want to bring back something that you said that the hurt partner takes the lead. They feel so wounded and disempowered, perhaps that it's important for them to feel their power again. And I would imagine that it's going to require a tremendous amount of tenderness. I'm going to use that word tenderness by both the hurt party, as well as, of course, the unfaithful one. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say that they're generally recommend there are four healthy ways of responding to a neurotic bid from your partner. So the first one is, and this is definitely as relevant for... And by the way, for, before, you, before you go there, what is an erotic bid for those of the people who do not know what that, that is? That could be an erotic bid, could be a sex initiation of sex. It could be a reach of like wanting to hold you or make out. It could be anything where your partner is wanting an erotic connection with you, a bid for connection, a reach for you. And so when your partner reaches for you in an erotic way, Four only four and only four ways, healthy ways to respond to that. And this is definitely relevant in the mid-stage of recovery and then long-term recovery from affair, from infidelity. The first is, hell yeah, let's go. Like full steam ahead. <laughs> it's on. Yep, it's on. The second is, I'm really not feeling sexual, but let's get started. For most people in long-term relationships, their desire goes from spontaneous, like that lusty wanting to rip your clothes off desire, to like you're making out, you're getting kind of turned on. And then you have this feeling of like, huh, don't mind if I do. What don't mind if I continue <laughs> down this path? So, so that's the second piece. And the second healthy way to respond is like, huh, I'm not feeling very sexual, but let's get started and see if that changes. The third is I'm not feeling very sexual, but I would love to prioritize your pleasure. So I'm going to sit here and hold you while you pleasure yourself, or maybe I'm going to do this or the thing to pleasure you. The fourth healthy way to respond is I'm really not feeling sexual at all. But I am committed to get back to you within this next 72 hours and I will initiate an erotic bid. And I prefer 24 hours, but give people a little bit of a leeway. Between 24 and 72 hours. Right. 
Yeah. And so there's no, I don't want it. I'm not feeling sexual. That's just not appropriate. That's just not appropriate. And in, in a sexual relationship, unless you're coming back later with a bid for erotic connection with your partner, because you're, yeah, anyway, those would be the, the four steps is what I would recommend. And those are going to be really important in recovering from infidelity and preventing the risk of erotic disconnection in the future, because you're both prioritizing the erotic aspect of the relationship. It deserves effort and it deserves priority. That is huge. I'm wondering if some people who are listening, for all we know, could be considering having an affair. There are many ways to do it. There are websites. But I'm wondering if somebody is considering having an affair, what questions would they want to ask themselves before going in that direction? Am I trying to end a relationship that I don't want to be in? And if so, can you do that in a way that is more in line with integrity and your values? (laughs) So the first thing is, do I really want to be in this relationship? The second is, if that the answer to that is yes, the second question is, would I like to work on the cracks and the foundation of my relationship in the easy or the hard way? So trust me, having an affair is the hard way. Because now not only do you have to get to the point and that you talked about short, middle, and long-term recovery. So not only do you have to get eventually to the mid section of the recovery where you're actually looking at the cracks and the foundation of the relationship, you want to sit through the short term of this where you're just listening to your partner. And all of the rage and anger and sadness and betrayal. And you're going to have to sit with the guilt and the shame of harming someone that at least at one point you loved and really creating for some people like very long lasting damage and insecurity in that person as a result of this betrayal. And in, in some people, just an inability to trust. So if you really want to be in the relationship, but there are things that are really not working for you in the relationship, do it the easy way. Get right to that mid, <laughs> get right to the things where you're talking about the cracks in the foundation of the relationship. And if it feels like the cracks are deep such that you can't have that conversation alone, well, your partner into therapy and work with someone that can help facilitate that conversation. This is maybe one of the best pieces of advice I could ever imagine. And so profound that I think I'm going to close on it, Brittany. You are a powerhouse. I am so glad I interviewed you. And I I just can't thank you enough for providing all of who you are, as well as your wisdom to my listeners. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been such a pleasure. Always happy to, to check in. Right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.